You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors, and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black, that is okay. Happy 2023, this is the first podcast of the year for me, uh, and we are doing part two, so it's a first podcast, but a second part. Is that weird? I don't know. Anyway, I read... Um, the Come Up, I continued to read The Come Up, chapters 7 through 16. Um, this is the oral history on the rise of hip-hop by the celebrated author Jonathan Abrams. And yeah, so on the first part I talked about chapters 1 through 6, now I'm going to talk about chapters 7 through, I already forgot, 16. And uh, I kind of broke it up into three different parts. But before we get into that, yeah, if you didn't listen to part 1, um, it's up. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think you uh, you need to go back and listen to it if you if you missed uh, part one. You you won't be lost in part two, uh, and most of us already know the story of hip hop. I think, um, you know, I I had just read Nelson George's book about hip hop like a couple of months back, so that was already there. Plus, I, I was really into this, you know, as a kid and as an adult in my whole life. So, a lot of the uh, timeline for hip hop is not new to me. So I'm going to kind of like glance over that, did it in the first part, going to do the same thing here. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, if you want to go read about DJ Cool Herc and Africa Bombada and all of that started in the Bronx branches out into the larger New York area and then throughout the country. And, um, and there you go. There's your quick timeline rundown where we're going to pick up is around the mid eighties. So, the inception of hip hop is pretty much over, right? It's been five, six, seven, eight years. And um, now you're starting to get a lot of stuff going on in New York. So that's where chapter seven picks up. And then from there, so that's the first thing we'll talk about. Then we'll go into the regional splintering of hip hop into places like LA, uh, again, back to New York, but more of a the native tongues movement, right? Then Florida, the South, right? Florida, the South, and then the South, the South, not Florida. Then Oakland, and then we return to LA in chapters 15 and 16. So kind of hopping all around. But yeah, so we're still in like the New York gestation period more or less right now. And that's what chapter seven, eight, nine cover. And so yeah, let's just go ahead and hop in. So for chapter seven, it's all about public enemy. I really, I didn't really take many notes. You know, I was looking at my notes earlier before starting the podcast. And I think actually for chapter seven, I literally did not take a single note. And that's because Public Enemy is one of those groups where you really appreciate what they meant. And they do have a couple of great hits. But overall, I just don't love listening to Public Enemy all that much. And so, you know, I feel like they've got several great songs and they're very important. But um I don't know, you know, like I wasn't really listening to hip hop when I was under five years old. So the albums didn't mean as much to me. And then when I got older, yeah, I bought Public Enemy shirts. I had all of the albums. It takes a, nation's, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. And oh, Fear of a Black Planet. And I know I'm missing others, but those are the two big ones, right? And so it was cool. I listened to them. I ingested it, whatever. 
But this chapter is dealing with them as like a cultural phenomenon. How are they this completely different thing? And for me, that really wasn't the case because I wasn't, you know, on the scene when that happened. I learned about them when I was like, I don't know, 14. So that's 10 years after their huge impact and five or six years before their, you know, second or third demise, the demise of Flavor Flav. So uh, yeah, anyway, so that's enough about Public Enemy. In terms of groups that I don't like that are discussed in this book, they're not like Run DMC. I, I know in the last podcast I talked about how I just don't like Run DMC. Public Enemy is not like that. I appreciate Public Enemy, but overall, you know, not one of the defining groups for me. Uh, a similar type thing happens in Chapter 8 where they talk about the gumbo of magnificence is the name of Chapter 8. And it's talk about all this different stuff that's going on in, in New York at the time, and we've got... Uh, the Bronx versus uh, Queensbridge, the Bridges Over, Boogie Down Productions, KRS-One, all of that. There was a period uh, where me and my friend right after high school got super into this era of hip-hop. We were listening to Marley Marl, we were listening to The Symphony, and we were listening to Big Daddy Kane and um, Cool G Rap and KRS-One. Now, KRS-One is a rapper who I just don't like. Again, then, so he's somewhere between Run DMC and Public Enemy for me. I appreciate KRS-One, so more so than Run-DMC, but I dislike him way more, than, and so that's more like Run-DMC than it is like Public Enemy, because I actually just don't like KRS-One. And the reason is because every time he's interviewed, he's given this outsized importance about hip-hop. I know he's super important to hip-hop, but, um, you know, as Gangstar said, it's mostly the voice. I think KRS-One has a great... Uh, well, do I? I think he has good lyrics <laughs> and um, a solid flow. I just don't like his voice all that much. And I just don't think he's all that appealing. And there's a lot of times where you listen to hip hop or like, especially back in the day, where, you know, somebody's always trying to drop knowledge on, you know, someone's always trying to be like, oh, yeah, it's like uh, you don't appreciate this guy because of this. Oh, you're probably more into this kind of hip hop as if KRS-One is like the only conscious rapper out there or not even conscious just the you know the most truth-telling rapper out there or the guy who's like getting at this thing that you wouldn't understand because you're not really with it and that part always annoyed me too so part of it is the the cult around krs1 and not the rapper himself anyway so this chapter also really not that much for me i do have two notes though from this chapter one happened on page 145 and I just thought this was so weird. So the song Roxanne, Roxanne, and Roxanne, Shantae, and all of that, you know, we all know about that whole hip-hop thing, so I'm not going to get into that. But I just want to read this real quick. In response to being stood up, Marley Marl, Marley Marl and a 14-year-old girl who lived in Queensbridge, Lolita Shantae Gooden, made Roxanne's Revenge. Um, so that's the whole Roxanne Shantae saga, right? But her name was Lolita. That's just so weird because, you know... The book Lolita is all about, what's his name in the book? Humbert Humbert, uh, being in love with a 14-year-old. It's almost like, you know, bizarrely coincidental. Anyway, uh, and then on the very next page, just another funny thing was um, this passage where we're going to roast Jonathan Abrams a bit. Um, what did he write? Philadelphia's Pop Art Records released Roxanne's Revenge as a 12-inch. This early diss record, a song that verbally attacks a target, quickly became a sensation. 
I just think it's hilarious to have to define disc record. There's a lot of slang in this book throughout, you know, here or there when people are talking and whatnot. And to have to define disc record, it's such an old term at this point that if you're reading a book about hip hop in 2022 and you don't know what a disc record is, you should stop reading the book about hip hop. Okay. And then the last note from this chapter is when they actually talk about the symphony, which is a great song from this era. And the reason I like the symphony so much is that I really think it sounds modern still. I, so I, I think when I was like 19 or 20, Double XL or The Source put out like the 100 best hip hop songs ever. And the symphony was on it. I think that's how I heard about it. So I must have been like, it must have been like 2003, 2004, something like that when I was 19. Yeah, maybe earlier. I can't remember. Anyway. And I remember listening to that one going like, oh, this still sounds good, you know, because not every old hip hop song sounds good. Like I put on some 1983 Too Short earlier today and I was like, oh no, it wasn't even 83, it was 86 Too Short. And I was like, yeah, this sounds like 1986 Too Short. But the symphony does not. Anyway, Master Ace is talking about his verse and he says, um, so I went in and I spit a rhyme that I had from memory. It wasn't something that I wrote to the beat. It was just something I walked around with. And that's one of those random little lines that I just love, you know? It was something that I walked around with. It's very poetic. So that's Master Ace. And it reminded me of the line earlier in the book when the person said, it was Easy AD from the Cold Crush Brothers. He said, you was delivering information that was created by yourself. It's, it's that similar thing, you know? So you're just walking around with this information that you just have to impart on people. Really just liked that and thought it was a good line. And then, yeah, the rest of uh, Gumbo of Magnificence, you know, goes into LL Cool J, talks about MC Shan, who um, I've not listened to much of. And then in one of the more on-the-nose moments in hip-hop history, DJ Marley Marl has his record, has his drum reel stolen. And they, the person who stole it was said G, and he stole it to make a diss record. Uh you know, which was the bridge is over. So, but it's funny because at this time, hip hop was just now coming under fire for the sampling stuff, you know, not too long after this, you know, the Beastie Boys would get in trouble with Paul's Boutique and, you know, the ongoing conversation of hip hop artists ripping off beats or stealing beats or stealing bass lines or like, are they really making music, etc. But, um, I like to go with the Jim Jarmusch thing where he says good ar good artists borrow and great artists steal. And Jarmusch may have stolen that quote himself. So this is like a very on-the-nose version of that where this guy literally stole the drum reel <laughs> to make a diss record, a diss record, against the very person he was stealing it from. On my note, I drew a, like a recycle, reuse, reduce arrows, because I don't know how to draw that snake or a boros that eats its own tail, but you get the idea. All right, moving on. The next chapter is reinventing the wheel, and this is a chapter that is super important. And Jonathan Abrams right here writes that Rakim is the first most important rapper. Pretty sure that's what he said. If he didn't say it, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, so this chapter is about Rakim. And Rakim is one of the the huge moments of hip-hop. So I, I would argue that you could probably do the... You could probably skip over everything that's been read in the book and just skip right to this chapter as, as far as, like, a timeline, if you're just putting a point on the map. You know, there's 
obviously important things before this. Cool G Rap is important, and Big Daddy Kane is important, LL Cool J and Run DMC, they're all important. But hip-hop leaps forward like 15 light years when Rakim comes on the scene. Nothing sounds like Rakim. He still sounds amazing. Uh, Paid in Full is still a great album, and that's it. But he took rap and just pushed it forward like 15 years. And that's why he's the first most important rapper. He still gets a ton of credit for being one of the greats of all time. Because everybody recognizes, like, you know, you wouldn't have even had, whatever, we would have eventually got there anyway, but it would have just taken so much longer, or who knows how we get there, and he just did it. So that's what Chapter 9 is about. There's some other stuff in here, but who cares? And really just doesn't matter. Well, the back half of the chapter, actually, just to be, I guess I'll go ahead and be petty, is um, about Philadelphia, and they talk about how Will Smith came along, and you kind of forget how Will Smith came up through hip-hop because he's been famous for so long. But it, so at any point, or at some point, um, Lady B, who's a radio DJ in Philadelphia, she says that um, Philadelphia, like, invented turntablism uh, in a way. And um, she's talking about that and DJ Jazzy Jeff. And then she said this thing, which is, like, how people win arguments, but they shouldn't win them this way. So I, I'm going to demonstrate that. So she says, it is a real art. It's like playing an instrument. You can be an okay sax player or you can be Miles Davis. Jeff, meaning Jazzy Jeff, is the Miles Davis of turntablism. But of course, Miles Davis didn't play the saxophone. So, you know, if you wanted to be a jerk, you'd point that out. You know how they do in like presidential debates. Like you point that out and people are like, ah, and it's like, okay, but her actual point is just that DJ Jazzy Jeff is this innovative artist. The fact that she couldn't you know, pinpoint what instrument Miles Davis played. It is technically beside the point, even if it is funny. Okay, and then um, the last thing about Will Smith, which I wanted to relate back to Cool Modi's point earlier in the book, was the uh, was this quote here by Anne Carley from Jive Records. So she's talking about how Will Smith, you know, became Will Smith, and she says. We made the video for Parents Just Don't Understand, and then we did a film-to-tape transfer to video the next day. And we're watching the footage, and we're freaking out, because the camera just loved this gawky kid. The class clown dude with a pimple on his face, who's always making jokes and who's so animated. And Scott and I looked at each other and went, oh my god. Barry Weiss says, it was a watershed moment, and they were one of the first big pop crossovers. It was exciting as hell. That shit never gets old. And then later, Jeff Sledge says... People could still kind of look down upon you if you had commercial or pop success. He talks about MC Hammer too. And yeah, this is exactly what Cool Modi was talking about where he says uh, as soon as you're, as soon as you're um, embraced by the white community, you're going to have resentment. So he says as soon as white America embraces it, it separates us. And then you get the resentment, which is true. And I think you definitely see that. Uh, with Will Smith throughout his career, you know, there's he's been really on the fence this whole time. Not, it, there's no on the fence in terms of black, right? He's black. But on the fence in terms of his acceptance by black people and by a certain segment of black people. And that's what Cool Modi is talking about. And also what, um, to a lesser extent, Ann Carley and Barry Weiss are talking about. Um, Ann Carley is black, so she can speak on it. I don't believe Barry Weiss is, but I'm just going off a name there, and that's never a good idea. It's tough in America. 
my last name implies nothing. Okay, so that was chapter 7, 8, and 9 in the 80s in New York. Yeah, just kind of still getting the the beginnings of hip-hop ironed out, and then Rakim fast-forwards it a billion years, and then Will Smith becomes one of the first big, big crossover successes, even more than Run DMC. Obviously, Will Smith was like the biggest movie star in the world for a decade. After that, we get super regional. Um, so chapter 10 is Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Compton, New York City. I don't really have anything to say about this. And the reason is because I don't care about NWA, and NWA does come up here. Uh, it also talks about Ice-T. I don't really care about Ice-T either. You know, like, he's super important, but uh, outside of a couple of songs, you know, it's just not my favorite rapper. Murs gets interviewed a lot here. I like Murs. Some of the stuff he's saying, I, I just don't know. Like, here he says... Ice-T was a big influence, oh no, excuse me, he says, um, Eazy-E, Mixmaster Spade, Toddy T, they were street dudes from LA, but they were really involved in this shit, and they really sounded like they were from Compton, LA, and South Central. Ice-T and Ice Cube are rappers, they're artists, they're thespians, they're entertainers, so I think that's why I gravitated more toward Toddy T. Pretty sure Ice-T's been through some stuff, and, um, I love Murs, but, you know, he's more appeals to the nerd rap crowd. Which is fine. You can like rappers who are polar opposites of you. My favorite current rapper is Conway the Machine, and he got shot in the face, and um, I'm a math teacher, so slightly different backgrounds. Okay, anyway, so that's chapter 10, and uh, yeah, I don't really have anything more to say about that. Chapter 11 is um, about the Native Tongues movement, Jungle Brothers, Three Free Hide and Rising, The Tribe Called Quest. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I happen to actually be listening to De La Soul on the way here because, uh, I'm driving an old car and it has a CD player and I found a bunch of old CDs and one of them was, uh, Three Feet High and Rising. In fact, I'm staring at, I bought a copy of Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die like 18 years ago on a Black Friday and I found it in the garage. But anyway, so I was listening to De La Soul on the way here. I love that album. It's great. Um... But this goes back to the Cool Modi quote, uh, except it's not mainstreaming, but it is about white audiences. White audiences, absolute embrace of things like Three Feet High, or excuse me, De La Soul, Tribe, this stuff, you know. It can become borderline annoying, you know what I mean? Where it's like, uh, just because it, the rap is less thuggish doesn't make it better. It just makes it rap about something else, which, again, I also enjoy. I, I will say here also that I find Q-Tip annoying. He doesn't get interviewed in the book, but I just find him annoying. I like Tribe. I do. They're not overrated. They're just not, like, my favorite rap group is, is I guess, what I would say. I need to listen to that De La Soul album from a couple years back, again. But I do love Three Feet High and Rising. Okay. All right, let's just move on. <laughs> 12 is, um, chapter 12 is about Miami and Riverside, California. Shout out to the IE. Uh, the biggest thing about this to me is that Brother Marquis emerges as the second best character in the book. So the first best character in the book, or just the best character in the book instead of first best. How about that? Cool Modi, because he's actually dropping knowledge. We already referenced it twice. Cool Modi is fantastic in the book. But Brother Marquis is a fool. It's hilarious. 
And so I'm just going to go ahead and read these quotes, which are from 2022. Now, it's two life crew, right? So uh, they're known for being raunchy and all of that. I just have to say, and I said this on the Nelson jo- when I read the Nelson George book, you know, two life crew still has just been one of those things where it's like, I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to get to it in, in terms of hip hop. And, and I think it's really great that I'm not going to get to it. I think it speaks to like how uh, diverse hip hop is. Because a lot of people don't think of it that way. But it actually is quite diverse. Yeah, so this is one of the things that just speaks to that, you know. Um, but so anyway, uh, he says, Brother Marquis says, um, I seen a guy in the crowd at one performance, and I remember we had this dancer, Def Jam. Now, the name of the dancer is D-E-A-F-J-A-M, Def Jam. We would call her Def Jam because she was obviously deaf, but she was fine. She had a nice body, and she was a great human being, that girl. <laughs> That's a nice body and a great human being. Oh, my God. The, the, the rest of the story is ridiculous. It's about bringing a guy on stage and penetrating him. I, I don't even, you know what, let's just read it. Anyway, so I'm like, that guy over there, he's looking like Biggie Smalls. He has the fake chains on. He has the fake Versace on with the hat. Put the water up in your vaginda, V-A-G-I-N-D-A, and go over there and squirt him. He came to the stage and she squirted him. The next thing I knew, they had him on stage penetrating him. All right. So, I, like, the story is completely ridiculous. I I don't even know what it means. But um, fantastic story. Then later on, on page 271, he says, I wrote the biggest record Two Light Crew ever had two live crew ever had, which was me so horny. That was totally me and Mr. Mix. I gave the Chinaman, uh, and then in um, brackets it says fresh kid ice, to let you know that when Brother Mark, he says the Chinaman, he means a person he worked with named Fresh Kid Ice, not just a random Chinaman. I, so, so he's just emerging in this chapter as a superstar of this book and, and really and truly an actual idiot. Um, so loved that, uh, chapter. That was great. And also, you know, just cool to read about, even though I had read about it recently with Nelson George, it was cool to read more about it. Then chapter 13 and 14, they were the South and Oakland. So I have nothing to say about the South. It's again, one of those pockets where I like certain hip hop from the South. It's good. Uh, I do appreciate it, but it just never appealed to me all that much. They talk about Juicy J a lot, though, and I do love Juicy J. Didn't realize he was a producer starting out, so that was cool to learn that. And then chapter 14 is about Oakland. Now, Oakland rap has definitely appealed to me. And they had two short in this, and I was talking to my mom about this today because we used to work with a guy when I used to referee at the YMCA who played too short exclusively. He had one of them old CD pouches like 96 CDs in it and they were all burnt CDs of two short albums, mixtapes, everything. And he would always have two short on. Yeah. So like, that's cool. I, but I wasn't in two short, but the hyphy movement, all of that Mac Dre, that was like college and, or just right before college. The biggest one for me is Del the Funky Homo Sapien who doesn't get referenced at all in this book. And you talk about a nerd rapper and somebody who appeals to, to white audiences, obviously works with gorillas, you know, he's a huge, 
crossover hipster nerd rapper guy, but he's also Ice Cube's cousin and was in the Bay early. I think his first album comes out in the early 90s. So I thought he might get a shout out, didn't really get a shout out. And then that made me go to the back of the book. And I was like, okay, if Dell's not in there, is like MF Doom going to be in there? MF Doom's not in there. So yeah, going down the nerd rap checklist, I think I saw Mad Lib. I think he may have already been referenced. Mad Lib was already referenced. When they were talking about Dilla, they talked about Mad Lib. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Mad Lib has already been referenced. So anyway, it's a history. It's a 50-year history, and it's got to cover, as I just said earlier, this diverse thing, which is a lot bigger than people might think. All right. So then that's like the middle of the eight chapters I read, right? So the first three were all in New York. Then those next five were the regional areas, and they bounced around here and there. The last two chapters, chapter 15 is really quick. It's just about the fact that they started slapping parental advisory labels on things. And cool, that's cool. Okay, fine. And then chapter 16 was a great place to stop because that's when the chronic gets released. And chapter 16 is called like elevating or something like that. It's called um, leveling up. What is it called? A higher level of execution. And that's really true. Because the next chapter after that is called Raising the Bar, and it goes into 2003, and that's when we're going to get Nas and Life After Death, 1994. You know, we're going to get Into the Wu-Tang and uh, Me Against the World, I think, is 94. So we're going to get a ton of, like, what I consider the golden era of hip-hop. Some people say it's right before this. But anyway, that's why Chapter 16 is a good cutoff point because it's the next point from Rakim to the Chronic, you know, there's stuff going on and there's all these regional movements bubbling and then the chronic brings it to this next level. So that's awesome. Really good place to cut it off. What needs to be said about the chronic? There's nothing to be said. There's nothing new in that chapter that you didn't already know. It, I mean, Suge Knight and all of the different people on there. I would say the only thing that was in there that was interesting to me was that apparently the IE may have, Inland Empire that is, where I'm from, where I'm currently seated, may have had something to do with the birth of G-Funk, which is exciting because my whole life growing up here, we didn't have a single rapper come out of here who did anything, you know? It made me really jealous, actually, reading about Too Short and selling all his albums out the trunk and stuff. Like, I grew up in a pretty white uh, town called Redlands, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, but really more of a suburb of San Bernardino. But you would expect maybe San Bernardino to produce some kind of rap artist because hip-hop is super regional as the book points out had there been a rap artist from the ie i'm sure we would have put on for him well the only thing is like riverside versus sam and odino that whole little split there would have been that the 909 versus the 951 but at any rate the point is we didn't have anybody and then turns out that some of the people who were working with dre on the production were from pomona well, then I was asking myself, is Pomona the IE? So I text my friend who I grew up with, and he said um, he thinks it's L.A. County. Looked at it, it is L.A. County, but it's also included in the Inland Empire. But in our minds, the Inland Empire is like Riverside County, San Bernardino County. So whatever, you know, we have plenty of Southern California rappers to claim. But it would have been nice to na- to claim one rapper who's a little bit down the East Freeway, you know, even farther away from the beach than uh, than Compton. Because you can get to the beach from Compton in under an hour. But 
yeah, I'm driving out to the beach tomorrow and the, and the traffic says two hours. So disappointing. I'm a little disappointed. You could hear it in my voice, but, um, now I can kind of backdoor claim, you know, this G-Funk thing. Like, oh, yeah, you know, actually, you know, you know where G-Funk really started, right? The IE. And then a person will be like, where in the IE? I'm like, don't worry about that. But anyway, these guys who are working on it, you know. But where it actually started was Pomona, maybe, kind of. The guys in the chapter didn't even say all that. They were like, yeah, you know. <laughs> did we did we start this? I don't know. You know, whatever. They didn't, like, do this salty hip-hop thing that people do. where like, they stole this thing from me to them. It's just like. Nah, I don't know if we started it, so probably not the case, and I'll just have to wait for an IE rapper. As I was talking to my friend, he mentioned that we started throwing out artists that were from here. Joan Baez uh, got a cup of coffee here one time or whatever. She went to high school here, kind of. And Moses Sumney is kind of from here, but he also lived in Ghana from age like 10 to 16. You know, six years you might really actually be from Ghana or wherever you were from before the 10 years you went to Ghana, you know? Um, and then I guess he lived in Riverside before he got famous, like, okay, fine. But then you got famous, like, not famous or whatever. You just moved to L.A. after your high school. So, yeah, no. Is that really the IE? I went, I was in the IE from elementary school until I finished at junior college. So that was a long time. But anyway... Uh, I digress. Let's get back to the book, which is fantastic. Oh, wait, 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 wait. One one more IE note was that I was going to go down to that skating rink down the street from my house and see if they had any hip-hop history and drum roll. Okay, remind myself to insert drum roll there. Um, I'm actually not going to do that. So, But anyway, uh, I did not go. So I have to go down there still and ask about, um, you know, did they used to have hip-hop parties there? My brother actually randomly, organically suggested going there just because, you know, he likes to skate or he can skate. I don't know if he likes to skate, but he at least can skate. I can't skate, so I'll just be there annoying people. But, um, you know, that's what I do best. So, okay. So, anyway, back to the book. Uh, it's been great. I have now, I believe, yeah, just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven chapters left to read. So about 150 pages. I actually read the bulk of the book in this last thing. I mean, we just ran through 230 pages. So the next podcast is going to be shorter probably, but probably not because it's more of the exact era that I love. So I, for me, I mean, I, and I think for most people, 1994 is the year because I think you have to say that Rakim is the greatest rapper that we have covered so far and we're two thirds of the way through the book. And then the chronic is great, but Dre's not the greatest rapper and Snoop is amazing, but he's not the only rapper on the chronic and they only kind of covered Snoop's album there. So really the best rapper, and even if Snoop was there, you know, Rakim is still to me, the greatest rapper covered in this era. So yeah, we haven't even gotten to obviously Pac, Nas and Biggie, Jay-Z, and then whatever comes after that, whatever people, you know, a lot of people think, a lot of people like Kendrick Lamar, sure, not for me, but whatever, and nobody's talked about Conway the Machine yet, yeah, no, <laughs> Conway the Machine's probably not in the book, but everybody should go listen to him, but anyway, on the next podcast, I will talk about those remaining seven chapters, and then, um, yeah, I might do a bonus podcast because I'm reading another book. I'm going to um, 
gonna gonna maybe do that. So I won't say what book it is, but um, yeah, read the next seven chapters of this book on the next podcast. And yeah, um, that's gonna do it for now. Uh, I'm going to start a TikTok, so look out for that book talk, right? That's what the um, the cool kids are doing. It's a New Year's resolution. I'm gonna shave my beard and start a TikTok all at once. Um, maybe that'll be the first TikTok. I'll read a book while shaving my beard. I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to do that. Uh, other than that, subscribe to the podcast on um, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Pocket Casts, Podbean, etc. Links in the show notes to the music, which is by The Keep Running. Um, links to my writings. And uh, follow me on Twitter as well, also in the show notes. And what else? That's it. So, until next time, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading. This time enough at last. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was, was all the time I needed. That's not